How many of you have ever seen a picture like that? Yeah, the evolutionists love to use this to convince people that we've evolved from some ape-like creature. They also have evolutionary trees like this one or a little more detailed one like, like this one. And they have all these fancy names, Australopithecus and Artipithecus and, and uh, Cro-Magnon and Homo erectus and Homo ergoster. And they're doing a very effective job of convincing Americans. A few years ago, Gallup poll did a survey to see what Americans thought about human origins. And they found that um, about 38% hold to the biblical view, down from up near 47% in the past. Although I'm a little bit dubious that it's that high myself from all my experience of speaking. But then he's, they found that another 38% believe in theistic evolution. That is, uh, we did evolve from some ape-like creature, but God was behind the scenes guiding the process. And then 19% uh, hold to the atheist view, which says God didn't have anything to do with it. We evolved from an ape by time and chance and the laws of nature. So I did the math, and that tells me that 57% of Americans believe that we evolved from some ape-like creature. Well, did we? Well, I want to begin with a uh, video clip. It's actually a trailer of a 50-minute video that showed for many years in the Natural History Museum in London. It's entitled, Who Do You Think You Really Are? And it features um, the, the voice of science in the BBC in England, Sir David Attenborough. So watch and listen, and can we dim the lights a little? This is a little on the dark side. take you on a journey, a journey to discover who you really are and where you came from. But you're not just going to sit there listening to me, you're going to be part of the experience and you'll be able to examine some of the evidence for evolution along the way. If you have a look at your screens now, you can rotate the modern human skull and you'll see the domed forehead, the small face, the small front teeth and on the lower jaw, a chin. If you keep looking through your screen, you will see Australopithecus afarensis, an extinct hominid who lived about three million years ago. Deep sea anglers live at a depth in the ocean below a thousand meters where there's no light, so they're living in total darkness. It was our fishy ancestors that first developed some of our most fundamental features, our skeleton, jaws, and four limbs. Hold up your screen and look through it one last time. You'll see the tree that represents all of life, past and present. We started this film with a question. Who do you think you are? And we can end it with an answer. You are, undoubtedly, like every other living thing on Earth, a member of one single family of life descended from a common ancestor living thousands of millions of years ago. Well, there you have it. Your great, 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 great,
that popped into existence in the primordial oceans three and a half billion years ago. That is scientific fact, the world is told. And most of the world believes it. Well, in that video, you saw the, uh, the evolution tree of life. It was produced by those blue laser beams. And uh, one of the branches on the evolutionary tree is the branch of hominid evolution. And so the evolutionists believe that the uh, gorilla, chimpanzee, orangutan, and modern man, as well as Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, Homo erectus, Homo ergoster, Australopithecus, uh, they're all descended from an ape-like creature. Now, you can't say, it's not accurate to say, that, that evolutionists say we evolved from apes. They will protest and say, no, uh, we didn't evolve from apes. Apes and humans evolved from a common ancestor. But if you ask them to draw a picture of what the common ancestor looks like, you'd say, well, that's an ape. So they're kind of playing a little bit of language game there. But <clears throat> creationists think that probably the orangutan is one kind of an ape. Chimps and gorillas and australopithecines may be related to a common ancestor, but uh, mankind would include all of us, as well as Cro-Magnon, Homo erectus, Homo ergoster. We're all descended from uh, Adam, made in the image of God, distinct from those other creatures. So there are two different ways of looking at the origin of, of man. Uh, and the evolutionary view is based on those naturalistic assumptions that I defined for you, that everything must be explained by time and chance and the laws of nature. And the creationist takes the eyewitness testimony of the creator and looks at the very same evidence. The same skulls, the same DNA, the same living creatures, the same fossils, so we want to look at which view fits the facts, and I want to begin by showing you uh, some of what the evolutionists say, and then we'll look at what the Bible has to say. Now, one of the key creatures leading uh, on, uh, on, the, on the tree branch to man is Australopithecus. Australo meaning southern, Pithecus meaning ape. So these are the southern apes, and uh, much of the evidence for Australopithecus has been found in East Africa, particularly Kenya, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. <clears throat> and the most famous Australopithecine is Lucy. How many of you have ever heard of Lucy? Yeah, Lucy is more famous today than Eve. Uh, Donald Johansson, a PhD student in Chicago, and his team found the bones of Lucy in 1974. They found about 25% of the skeleton but because of the symmetry of the body and the major bones they had, they could reconstruct about 70% of the skeleton. Since then, other Australopithecine fossils have been found, and they now have hand bones and feet bones. And so uh, this is the way that the Natural History Museum has pictured Lucy in London. And I want you to notice that she has human hands, human feet, upright posture, just like you and I stand, but an ape-like face. There are even evolutionists who would say that Lucy and her kind were knuckle walkers similar to a bonobo or big pygmy chimp or gorilla. And that's the way we've pictured her in our creation museum under the direction of um, Dr. David Minton, who just passed away, went home to be with the Lord just a few, a uh, couple of weeks ago. 
but he was a professor of human anatomy at Washington Medical School for 34 years, and he uh, was a very strong student of the evolutionary arguments and fossil evidence, and he guided our artists to make that uh, presentation. Well, that's Lucy in London, but now I want to show you Lucy in St. Louis, because the St. Louis Zoo has a Lucy exhibit, and uh, that's Lucy in St. Louis. Now, she's got a little bit more hair, but she still has human hands, human feet, upright posture, and an ape-like face. And look at that face. Look at the eyes. Do you see the whites of the eyes? Those are human eyes. But the eyes are not preserved in the fossil record. So that's pure imagination. Apes don't have eyes like that. Those are photographs of real apes. Their eyes are almost completely black or dark brown. They have to really turn and look to the side to see any white in the sclera. That's an imaginary creature created by an evolutionary artist. So just by putting human eyes into the art, it makes the creature look more human. Well, that's Lucy in London and Lucy in St. Louis, but the Chicago Field Museum also has a Lucy exhibit, and that's Lucy in Chicago. Now, she's a little more robust. She has heavier eyebrow ridges, but she still has human hands, human feet, and upright posture. And then that's Lucy in a BBC television program. Her face is completely different from the others, although she does have that unusual hairline. But that's because the BBC is in London and the Natural History Museum is in London, so I guess they figured we ought to make those kind of similar. But then that's Lucy in Smithsonian Magazine and Lucy in Science, two of our leading science magazines. So it's just any way they want to draw her. In 1981, Richard Leakey, who is the famous son of Lewis and Mary Leakey, all famous evolutionary anthropologists and all atheists, uh, he's the director of the Kenyan National Museums. He wrote a book entitled The Making of Mankind to teach the general public about where man came from. And in that book he said, we can now say that the Australopithecines definitely walked upright. So is there any doubt in his mind about this? No, they definitely walked upright. Well, that was 1981. But in 1982, he was up in London speaking at the Royal Institution, a very famous science institute, and there was a reporter from the New Scientist magazine uh, that went to the lecture. Now, the New Scientist is a weekly science magazine published in Great Britain. It summarizes the technical scientific literature for the general public so that we can stay informed about what's going on in science. And it is evolutionist in orientation. The reporter tells us, Leakey points out that paleontologists do not know whether Australopithecus walked upright. Nobody has yet found an associated skeleton with a skull. Well, now that's interesting. I wonder how many people who read the book in 1981 were at the prestigious lecture in 1982 to hear that statement. The uh, author goes on to quote Leakey. I'm staggered to believe that as little as a year ago, I made the statements that I made. Well, I'm staggered too when I think about it. Well, so said Richard Leakey before the elegant audience of a Royal Institution Evening Discourse last Friday. 
He had come to reveal that the conventional wisdom which he had so recently espoused in his BBC television series, The Making of Mankind, was probably wrong in a number of crucial areas. Now, you see, the BBC realized not enough people are going to read that book. So we need to do a documentary so more people will know what's in that book. But now Leakey says he was wrong in a number of crucial areas. Not little, tiny, insignificant points. Crucial areas. I wonder how many people who watched the TV documentary were at this lecture to hear that. In particular, he now sees man's oldest ancestor as being considerably younger than the 15 to 20 million years he plumped for on television. How many TV viewers ever heard that? Leakey says that the basis on which paleontologists classify fossil apes and humans is misleading, and he would like to see an entirely fresh episode of classifying. Well, that was 1982. In 1986, an article appeared in Discover Magazine, a leading American science magazine. And uh, Pat Shipman is a prominent uh, American anthropologist, paleontologist. He wrote the article. It begins this way. An extraordinary 2.5 million-year-old skull found in Kenya has overturned all previous notions of the course of early hominid evolution. We no longer know who gave rise to whom, perhaps not even how or when we came into being. Now, if I had a dollar for every time I've read in the scientific literature that some discovery has overturned all their previous thinking about some aspect of evolution, I'd be a very wealthy man. Because I've been collecting statements like this for many years, and they appear regularly in the scientific literature. So they found this skull, and now they don't know who gave rise to whom, when, or how we came into being. So prior to the discovery of this skull, and don't worry about the 2.5 million years, that's all uh, make-believe. We'll talk about dating methods tomorrow. But prior to the discovery of that skull, this was a chart by Donald Johansson, who found Lucy, and Timothy White, another leading American uh, paleontologist. And... Uh, They've got some questions before they get to Lucy's kind, but then they're very confident that some of Lucy's descendants went off into extinction. The others eventually evolved into man. They have that all figured out, except they do have a question about Neanderthals. And then they found that skull. And now they don't know who gave rise to whom, when, or how we came into being. Well, that article in Discover went on to summarize all the fossil evidence for Australopithecus up to that point. And the article ended this way. <clears throat> the bottom line of all this is that a great deal of work needs to be done. It's a new era in paleoanthropology. The things we thought we understood reasonably well, we don't. Notice, it's not the things that they were iffy about that they now realize are wrong. It's the things they thought they understood reasonably well they now realize are wrong. No better argument can be made to support the time, trouble, and cost of field work than this new skull. Like an earthquake, the new skull has reduced our nicely organized constructs to a rubble of awkward, sharp-edged new hypotheses. That's a scientific word for guess. It's a sure sign of scientific progress. Well, it is progress. 
It's progress when you find out that what you thought was true is wrong. That is progress. But they're not getting any closer to the truth. They're getting more confused as time goes on, as I'm going to show you. Well, that was 1986. In 1994, Nova Television had a series of programs on human origins. And I want to show you a clip from uh, one of the programs. It features Dr. Owen Lovejoy, another famous American uh, paleontologist, at the time a professor at Kent State University in Ohio. And I want you to listen and watch to what he is doing to a plaster cast of Lucy's hip bones. And the voice in the background narrating is Donald Johansson who found Lucy. So let's dim the lights again and watch and listen. And you can even read. Uh, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well that they are in an anatomically impossible position. The perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bones seem to flare out like a chimp's. But all was not lost. Lovejoy decided he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. How did he know what that was? He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. How did he know what that was? It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly, like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. Well, of course it does. It gr he ground it to look like ours. Now listen, if a creationist did that to the fossil evidence, or a plaster cast of the fossil evidence, he would be crucified. An evolutionist does this, well, this is good science. No, this is a manipulation of the evidence to fit a preconceived idea. Lucy in St. Louis, Chicago, and London. No, she was not our relative. She was a knuckle walker. Well, what about Neanderthal man? The first Neanderthals were discovered in the Neander Valley in Germany in 1856, and uh, <clears throat> this is how the evolutionists pictured them. Uh, rather stooped in the shoulders, pretty muscular, ape-like in the head, and not wearing very many clothes. Of course, the clothes are not preserved in the fossil record, so that's pure imagination. Well, they've since found more Neanderthal uh, bones in various parts of Europe and the Middle East and elsewhere, and there are now even evolutionists who would say that if you dressed up uh, Neanderthal in a coat and tie and put him in a top hat, uh, he, could, he could come into the morning service at Grace Church of the Valley and nobody would even take a second look. In fact, Time Magazine, uh, over 20 years ago, had an article entitled The Changing Faces of Neanderthal. And they showed how Neanderthals have been represented over the years. So here you have Harper's Weekly Magazine, 1873. He needs a haircut, but otherwise he could be an American Olympic athlete. 
Then in 1909, he's human below the head and naked. In 1953, he's behaving like some humans, but he's ape-like in the head. In 1984, he needs a shave and a haircut, taught not to eat live frogs or mice, whatever he's got in his hand there, but he's human. In 1988, he's showing us that he needs to go to the dentist, but he's human. But then CNN has him more ape-like in 2006. He's got a lot more hair in Newsweek in 2007, and he's perfectly human in 2008. The Neanderthal Museum in Germany for many years had an exhibit where they featured the 1983 version and the 1909 version. And one evolutionist commenting on this said, from his bestial 19th century persona to just another guy in a suit, Neanderthals have been pigeonholed according to the times. Well, like any good museum, the Neanderthal Museum has upgraded their exhibits. And uh, this is what they looked like in 2010. <clears throat> now, the guy on the left has been out in the sun too long, and he does have a big nose. But I've noticed some of you have big noses, and so I've been wondering, you know, where you are on the evolutionary tree. Oh, that's ridiculous. They're human. They're probably people that look like that. But people say, Yes, but they were primitive. They had primitive stone tools, primitive culture. That, that shows that they weren't fully human. No, it doesn't. When George Washington was president of the United States, living in the presidential palace there in Philadelphia with Persian rugs on the floor, fine china, and a toilet in the house, living in the very same country at the very same time, were Native American Indians living in teepees, with no Persian rugs on the floor, no fine china, and no toilet in the teepee, and they were just as human as George Washington. And we have people today that in our Western arrogance and pride we call primitive, people like the Aborigines of Australia. They're different from us. They have a different lifestyle, but there are Aborigine children who go off to universities and if you dropped me by helicopter into the forest where they live with just the clothes on my body, even though I have a PhD, I'd probably be dead in three days. I'd eat some poisonous plant. I wouldn't know how to make a boomerang or a spear, and even if I did, I wouldn't know how to catch anything. They're different from us, but they're not subhuman. Yes, but the Neanderthals lived in caves. That proves that they weren't fully human. No, it doesn't. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered on the west side of the Dead Sea in Israel. Copies of the Hebrew Old Testament and other ancient Jewish writings put in clay pots in these caves by a group of Jews called the Essenes who lived out there just before and after the time of Jesus. And did you know that the Bible speaks about cavemen? There are no ape men in the Bible, but there are cavemen in the Bible. Hebrews 11 talks about them. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. There are a lot of caves in Israel because there's a lot of limestone rock. And Sarah, Jacob, Lazarus, and Jesus were buried in a cave, just like Neanderthals buried their dead in caves. And Lot, Elijah, and David lived in a cave for a while. Why did they live in a cave? Well, because the necessities of life required it. 
God said to Lot, I'm going to destroy Sodom, get out of town. He went up into the mountains, into a cave. Elijah was running from King Ahab. David was on the assassin's list of King Saul. And if you're running for your life, a cave is a really good place to hide. And we have cavemen today. A very famous one died just a few years ago. His name was Osama bin Laden. And why was he living in the caves of the mountains of Afghanistan, we are told? Because the necessities of life required it. Very smart man. The archaeological evidence that Neanderthals were 100% human is overwhelming. They made sophisticated spears, needles, and stone tools. Now, an, a monkey will use a stick to get ants out of an anthill. A bird will use a piece of straw to get a bug out of a tree. Uh, an otter might use a, a rock to break open an oyster on its belly. But animals don't make tools. Only humans do. And they made sophisticated ones. They used makeup, made seashell jewelry, painted art in caves. Only humans do that. They hunted dolphins and seals and dove for living sea mollusks. And humans are the only land creatures that do that. They used fire to cook food. They made glue and evidently made ropes and nets. And they built homes from animal skins. Now, a beaver will build a dam. A bird will build a nest. Ants will build high-rise anthills. But only humans make homes out of the skins of animals. They made flutes from bear femurs and headdresses from feathers. They cared for their sick, did surgery. We, we know this because um, some of the Neanderthal bones show evidence of having been operated on in some way and there's evidence of healing of the bone. And they ceremonially buried their dead. Now, uh, uh, an animal might lie next to a dying member of its kind, but they don't have funerals. They made and sailed boats, and they possessed the hyoid bone and the voice box, which scientists say is almost identical to modern humans. They had the species-associated gene FOXP2, and there's evidence they interbred with humans. In fact, scientists now tell us that except for black Africans, all other people in the world have at least 1% to 3% Neanderthal DNA. They're our relatives. And based on where the Neanderthals' uh, bones are found, we believe that they are people who migrated from the Tower of Babel after the flood. And if you think about it, they migrate from the Tower of Babel. God confused the language of the people. They start moving. Some of them move up into Europe. There are no cities in Europe. If you're going to survive, you've got to find a place for your family. A cave is a really good place. And if you were one of the people down in uh, the Tower of Babel that grew crops to help feed everybody else, well, you don't know how to make, you don't know how to make iron. You don't know how to make a, an axe. So you're going to be really primitive really fast. You're going to come up with ways to make very simple tools to try to catch animals to stay alive. You'll have primitive culture really fast, but not because they were subhuman. So the Neanderthals are our relatives. What about some more missing links? Well, Piltdown Man was announced in 1912. The Illustrated London News had a picture of what he looked like based on the evidence, which was a piece of jaw, two molar teeth, a canine tooth, and a piece of skull. And the confident interpretation of the Geological Society of London was that he was 
a half a million to a million years old. And they said, the bones leave no possible doubt, but that they represent a man who must be regarded as affording us a link with our remote ancestors, the apes. No possible doubt. Well, the bones went into the Natural History Museum in London. Over the years, there were other artistic representations, this one more ape-like. There were scientists who said, you know, we would like to look at those bones. And the Natural History Museum said, well, we would be happy to show you plaster casts of the bones. And the scientists said, well, you know, we would like to actually look at the bones. And the Natural History Museum said, we'd be happy to show you plaster casts of the bones. They didn't let anybody look at the actual bones for 40 years. Finally, in 1953, they let some scientists, they were evolutionists, look at the bones. And what they discovered was a deliberate hoax. The jawbone was from an orangutan that they estimated had died about 50 years earlier. The skull was human. They carbon dated it to be 500 to 700 years old. The bones were artificially colored with chemicals to make them look old. And when they examined the teeth under the microscope, they saw file marks. They had been filed to make them look like human teeth. It was deliberate fraud. And the evidence pointed to some of the leading British scientists and at the British Museum but they were all dead by 1953. Now think about this. How many people who read the article in the London news ever lived in 1953 to find out it was a hoax? Well, then there was a Nebraska man. And uh, he was announced in 1922. And the Illustrated London News had a picture of what he and his wife looked like when they lost the only piece of evidence that was found. It was a single tooth. And from that tooth, they reconstructed the whole scene. Well, they kept digging there in Nebraska. And by 1927, they had found more fossil evidence. And in a technical article, not in a popular newspaper, using a technical scientific name, not Nebraska man, they quietly announced, oops, we made a mistake. That wasn't an ape man. That was actually an extinct species of pig. So this is the real Nebraska man. And I like to say this is a case where a pig made a monkey out of a man. Well, Chris Stringer is a world expert on human evolution from an evolutionist perspective. He's at the Natural History Museum in London. In a book review in 1992 uh, about another book on human origins, he had this to say. The study of human origins seems to be a field in which each discovery raises the debate to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. True to the traditions of the field, the arguments swirl around the questions of the correct classification of the fossils and of the presumed relationships between the species of humans and pre-humans. So over time, they're just getting to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. Well, in 2000, an article appeared in National Geographic. I couldn't believe it was in the magazine. I'm going to show you everything on this one-page magazine. They had a picture of these six bones and a piece of jaw. And they said, It's hard to find someone who can draw a realistic-looking early hominid. That's why the Geographic's art department conducted a search for new talent. 
Four artists were picked to receive casts of two million year old female Homo habilis fossils. From these bits of evidence, now that's accurate, isn't it? That's bits of evidence. They were to sketch in skeletal and fleshed out form the hominid to whom the bones belong. So here's the assignment. We want you to look at those bones and we want, to, we want you to draw a complete skeleton and then we want you to draw a picture of what the creature looked like when it had uh, muscles and skin and hair and all. Each artist had two weeks with the bones before they were sent to the next persons. Research was completely up to the individual. That's why they, their work looks so different. There's no one way to draw her. Now, that's interesting. And notice, it only takes two weeks to do this. Well, they conclude, paleoanthropologists reviewed the results. Intrigued with all four entries, the art department has invited the artist to paint finished versions based on input from the consultants. But I just have a question. How will that help? Because the paleontologists don't have any more fossil evidence than the artists. And they're not as good at art. So how is that going to help? Would you be interested to see what they drew? Well, even if you're not, I'm going to show you because this is very educational. Let's start with the head. All they have from the head is the piece of jaw. And remember, there's no one way to draw her. So let's look at what they drew. Ape-like head, human-like head. Ape-like head, ape-like head. But they're all different. Now I'll show you the rest of the body, but before I do, I need to remind you of two facts. The first fact is, they only had six bones. But there are 207 bones in the human body. So that's not much to work with. But also notice those bones. They're not complete bones. They're bone fragments. So the artist is going to have to guess, well, how long was the bone when it was a complete bone? The second fact you need to know is that uh, apes ha or humans have an arm-to-leg ratio of three-quarters to one. So we stand up straight and our hands come to the middle of our thighs. But apes have much longer arms. If they could stand up straight, their hands would come to their knees or even farther. They all had the same six bones. None of them were complete bones. There's no one way to draw her, so let's see what they drew. Human length arms, getting down to ape length arms. Human length arms with curved hands to give it that tree-dwelling look, and this one's in a tree. And those arms look awfully long. Folks, this is not science. This is art and imagination in National Geographic, arguably the greatest propaganda organ for evolutionists in the world. In 2001, Daniel Lieberman, another prominent American anthropologist, wrote an article in Nature, technical journal in England. Another face in our family tree, he said. Until a few years ago, the evolutionary history of our species was thought to be reasonably straightforward. Well, I would dispute that based on just the evidence I've presented here. But, he goes on to say, Lately, confusion has been sown in the human evolutionary tree. The confusion now looks set to increase still further. So they're getting more confused as time goes on. But look at his chart. 
Down the left side, you've got the, the time of millions of years, about six million years. And then you've got those big, bold uh, bars of blue, green, black, red. That represents the fossil evidence. And then you've got those black lines with question marks tying them together. What's that? Well, that's not the fossil evidence. That's the evolutionary assumption about relationships. Let's get rid of that so we can see the fossil evidence. And that looks like different kinds of creatures have always been different kinds of creatures. Well, then there was the article in 2006, Lucy's baby, an extraordinary new fossil. They weren't saying it was literally Lucy's baby. It was found about four kilometers from Lucy, but it was a small version. And they showed us what they found. That's the stuff in orange. White is imagination. And they told us what they found. Shoulder blades and neck vertebrae like a gorilla. Inner ear canals like African apes. A long curved finger like a tree-dwelling ape. But now look at the picture. The only evidence they have is that one finger and a little bit of the upper arm bone. The rest is imagination. But they've drawn the arm the length of a human arm. It had a voice box like a chimpanzee's and a cranial capacity like a chimpanzee. So all the evidence is ape. But look at the way they drew it. It looks like that creature is standing upright just like you and I. It's a little barrel chested. It's got an ape-like head. Well, I didn't give you the whole title of the article. It didn't say Lucy's baby an extraordinary new fossil. It said an extraordinary new human fossil. But all the evidence is ape. So they should have said a new ape fossil. And if they'd said that, there'd be no reason to publish the article. Because who cares about an ape fossil? So what is this? It's more ape-man deception in one of our leading science magazines, Scientific American. Well, we've seen there's various ways to make an ape-man. You can take a few human bones, add imagination, and make an ape-man. Or you can take a few ape bones. Or you didn't even need an ape bone. You can use a pig tooth if you want. Add imagination and make an ape man. Or you can take a few uh, ape bones and a few human bones, add imagination, and if all those methods fail, you can always get a grinder or a file and change the shape of the bones, add imagination, and make an ape man. But there never have been any ape men. Neanderthals were fully human. Piltdown man was a hoax. Nebraska man was a pig. Australopithecines are apes. Lucy was an ape. And we could talk about Peking man, Java man, Ida, Homo naledi. They were all either fully ape, fully human, or imaginary creatures. In a book on the book table that I edited and contributed to with 16 other authors, um, Dr. David Menton, who uh, just passed away a few weeks ago, and Marvin Lubenow are experts on human origins. Uh, Dr. Menton wrote a tremendous chapter surveying all the evolutionist evidence, fossil evidence for humans. And, uh, and uh, Professor Lubenow wrote the chapter on Neanderthal, really powerful, powerful uh, chapters showing that um, evolution is not supported by the fossil evidence. What about the DNA evidence? Maybe you've heard this. National Geographic is just one of many places where it's been said that the DNA profiles of these two are nearly 99% the same. 
Anybody ever heard that? Chimps and humans are 99, 98% the same. Well, that's false. The reason it's false is because when they did the analysis, they didn't compare the whole chimp genome with the whole human genome because there was lots of stuff that didn't match and they used the human genome as a template. Dr. Um, Jeffrey Tompkins is a PhD geneticist at the Institute for Creation Research. He's gotten the whole published chimp genome and the whole published human genome and done a proper analysis and he has concluded in a technical paper on our website and now has just published recently a book furthering his research that the genomes of chimps and humans uh, are only about 85% the same. And that's a huge difference. Now, there's a lot of similarity. I mean, apes have five fingers and five toes and they, they eat bananas like we do, though they do peel it from the opposite end that most of us peel it. But, I mean, any five-year-old can see that there's a reason that the chimpanzee is in the cage at the zoo and not the five-year-old. Well, the genetic evidence also confirms that man is unique. And Jeffrey Tompkins on the right there in our Answers in Genesis, Dr. Jeanson wrote the chapter in Searching for Adam on the genetic evidence. And they argue that the genetics, particularly the mutation rates in the human genome, confirm that um, we are descended from uh, two people and uh, only a uh, a little more than a few thousand years ago. The human, the, the DNA of the human, the mutation rates in particular, do not fit the evolutionary time scale. Well, a lot more could be said, but we can summarize it and say that there is no evidence that man evolved that stands up to scrutiny. Rather, imagination and art are the keys and over time, the evolutionists are getting more and more confused. And the geneticist evolutionists argue with the paleontologist evolutionists because they get different stories, but neither one of them are right. So what does the Bible have to say? Well, we really need to look carefully because there are books being published by evangelical publishers today like Baker and Zondervan written by theistic evolutionists who deny that there ever was an Adam and Eve, who deny that uh, man was created supernaturally, and who believe that we evolved from an ape-like creature. And then there's an organization called BioLogos Forum, a theistic evolution organization, or they like to call themselves evolutionary creation because they want to be known as creationists, but they're really evolutionists. They're just saying that God used evolution, and they believe that we evolved from some ape-like creature. But I want to present now the biblical evidence that Adam and Eve were created supernaturally and are unique from all other creatures. Uh, we've already seen some of the scientific evidence that confirms that, but let's look carefully at the biblical evidence in Genesis 1.27, it says that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And man is the only creature made in the image of God. Both male and female, doesn't matter what our age is, how healthy or, or, or weak we are, how smart or not so smart we are, 
what our age is, whether we're in the womb or out of the womb, we're all made in the image of God. And then in chapter 2, we read about the creation of the first man and the first woman. In Genesis 2-7, it's the creation of the first man. And the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is a really, really important verse. And I have found in my reading that Christians, Christian theologians and Bible scholars who are telling the church that we don't have to necessarily insist on a literal Adam or even a historical Adam they don't pay careful attention if any attention to this verse but it's critical the last two words in that verse living being that's the New American Standard translation the NIV New King James and Christian Standard also translate those Hebrew words the same way. The ESV says living creature, the King James living soul. Those are all translations of the same Hebrew words, nefesh chaya. Nefesh, the word soul or creature or being. Chaya, the adjective form of the verb to live. Those words are really important because those same two words are used in Genesis 1 and are translated in virtually all trans as living creatures to refer to sea creatures and birds. The same words are used on day six to refer to land animals. They are also nefesh chaya, living creatures. The same words are used in chapter two when God brought animals for Noah to name. Land animals and birds, they're living creatures. The same word, Hebrew words are used in Genesis 9 with the creatures that came off the ark. They're living creatures. They're not made in the image of God, but the Bible calls them living creatures. So this is really important. And we can diagram what Genesis 2-7 says this way. God made man from the dust of the ground. He added the divine breath, and that became a living creature, a living being. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now contrast that to what theistic evolutionists say. They say God took a living creature that had evolved a body like God wanted and he breathed figuratively or literally into that creature and it became man. But that is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. In English or Hebrew, or Spanish, or Russian, or German, or Arabic. God did not take a pre-existing living creature and transform it into man. That's wrong. It's impossible to harmonize that with the evolutionist story. There's more evidence that it's wrong because in Genesis 3.19, God says after Adam and Eve sinned, you're gonna to return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And later scriptures tell us that all of us will return to the dust someday. And I want to I tell you what's going to happen, because I don't want you to be alarmed by the process. But when you die, they're going to put you in a casket. They're going to lower you into the ground. And after a few million years, you're going to change into an ape-like creature. <laughs> then after a few more million years, you're going to change into a reptile eventually into an amphibian, eventually into a fish, and eventually into a microbe, and then dust. No, that's not going to happen. When you die, when I die, we're going directly to dust, and we're not going to pass through any stages 
on the way because Adam was made from the dust. Well, God put, God made a garden and he put Adam in the garden and he gave Adam an assignment and he said, he he said, he, he gave him an assignment to name the animals that God brought to him. He didn't have to go out and look for them. God brought the animals to him. And uh, in the process, Adam realized there was, that he was alone. There were no other humans. He saw two dogs come by, male and female. Two elephants, male and female. But he said, none of those go with me. He might have been tempted if an ape walked by. He might have been tempted to, well, you know, they got five, but they don't go with me. And so God put him to sleep. And he took the rib which he had taken from the man and he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now in this case, Eve was made from from a pre-existing living creature, Adam. But there's no way you can harmonize this verse with evolution. This is describing supernatural surgery. Genesis 3.20 says that Eve was the mother of all the living. 1 Corinthians 15 says Adam was the first man. So the Bible is absolutely crystal clear. Both Adam and Eve were created supernaturally, but they were created in different ways. They were the first two human beings. Everybody is descended from them. But evolutionists believe that we evolved from a population of maybe 10,000 individuals over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years and over millions of years from ape-like creatures. Well, the Bible tells us how long ago Adam and Eve lived because we have the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, which tell us how long it was from Adam to Noah and then from Shem, who was on the boat with Noah, to Abraham. And uh, these genealogies are really, really important because they are the only genealogies in the Bible and in ancient Near Eastern literature that contain chronological information. So-and-so was X years old when the next man was born, and then he lived Z number of years, and he died. And -and so-and-so lived so many years, and then the next man was born, and he lived so many years, and he died. And so we can add those numbers together. Now, some creationists think there may be some missing names. I've read those arguments. I don't think they're persuasive at all. And they argue that, well, son of doesn't, in Hebrew, doesn't always mean a literal father-son relationship. And that is true. Jesus is called the son of David, but there's a thousand years between them. The Hebrew doesn't always mean a literal, but a lot of times it does. So there could be missing names. I don't think there are in this case, but there can't be any missing years because it tells us the age of the patriarch when the next man is born. So it doesn't matter whether Seth was the son or grandson or great-grandson of Adam. He was born when Adam was 130 years old. So there might be missing names, I doubt it, but there are no missing years. And so it's about 2,000 years from... uh, Adam to Abraham, and then the Bible gives us, it's a little more detective work to figure out exactly when Abraham was born, and that was about 2100 BC, 
and we're about 2,000 years after uh, Jesus, so it's about a little more than 6,000 years, and Adam was made on the sixth literal day of history. I wrote the chapter in Searching for Adam on the biblical arguments for Adam being created uh, six days after the whole universe was made, about 6,000 years ago. As I said, the chapter 10 on genetics argues not only that we all came from two people, a man and a woman, but that uh, the genetics, the mutation rates argue for the biblical chronology and against the evolutionary time scale. Well, if that is all true, where do all the races come from? Well, the Bible's very clear. In Acts 17, for God made from one man or one blood every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth. So the Bible says there's only one race, Adam's race. There are different people groups, different languages. That's all the result of the Tower of Babel. Uh, but there's only one race. And in, in the year 2000, the Human, human Genome Project um, finished mapping the human genome. They know what's there. They don't understand it all. In fact, the more they learn, it, it's getting more complicated because now they're finding there's not only uh, information in the DNA, there's information on another level of the DNA. It's called epigenetics, and it's just mind-boggling. And these geneticists made the announcement in 2000 after mapping the human genome that it's a biological fact. There's only one race. There's no scientific basis to talk about multiple races of humans. There's no such thing as a black race, a white race, a brown race, a yellow race, a red race. There's a human race. But evolution is an inherently racist theory. And Darwin was racist. He said this in his book, The Descent of Man, in 1871. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly ex be, uh, exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state, as we may, now, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as now between the Negro or Australian Aborigine and the gorilla. Rich, uh, Stephen Gould, who I quoted in the last lecture, said this, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. And even the diagrams that the evolutionists use to convince us of human evolution are inherently racist. Look at this one from Time Life Books. The skin gets lighter and the last one is a Caucasian. Or this one in National Geographic. Or this one in Discovery Channel in 2007. These are inherently racist diagrams. But there's only one race. Well, let me ask you, uh, which, which ones uh, in this picture are the colored people? They're all colored. There's no white person in that picture. There's no black person in that picture. There are just shades of brown people in that picture. Researchers have found that there are 15 different genes 
that make major contributions of skin color. We all have the same color. We all have melanin, a pigment in our skin. Some of us have DNA information that says, just make a little bit of melanin. They're light brown. Others have information that says, just make lots of melanin. They're very dark brown. We can illustrate it this way. It's more complicated than this, but if we just think of um, two forms of the genes and big A and big B both make, uh, give information for large amounts of melanin, little a, little b, small amounts. Depending on how you co combine those, you can get, uh, if, if the child gets from mom and dad, big A, big A, big B, big B, they're very dark skin. If they get a little bit of both, they're medium brown. If they get light, they're light skin. So what color were Adam and Eve? Well, if Adam and Eve were light-skinned, then they would have had little a, little b, and all of their children would be light-skinned. If they were really dark-skinned, uh, they would have all dark-skinned kids. And so there's no genetic variation there. And so we think there's good reasons to believe that Adam and Eve were middle brown, like Middle Easterners. And that would have given them the genetic information for all kinds of variation. In fact, they could have had that variation in the first generation because Adam and Eve, uh, the Jewish tradition said they, has fi they had 53 children. They could have had a whole kaleidoscope of color in one generation. And you say, well, that's not possible. Well, look at this interesting family. The mother is from Ghana, the husband is from Germany and they had twins and they're not the same shade of brown. Or look at this family. One twin is darker than mom and dad. The other twin is lighter than mom and dad. What's going on here? Well, both mom and dad have a black father and a white mother. Well, those girls have grown up and they love each other. Should we say that that's an example of a blight, white and black twins? No, I don't think we should use that language. I think we should say that's a dark brown and a light brown twin. So we have all these labels, mongoloid, negroid, Caucasian, Cro-Magnon, Homo erectus, Neanderthal. These are all man-made labels for slight variations in physical differences. But they're all descended from Noah and his family who descended from Adam and Eve. So when we really look carefully at the evidence, the evolutionary view doesn't fit the facts. They have to use imagination, art, and when necessary, filing or grinding or even fraud but what we see fits with what the bible says well so what does it really matter yes it does a few years ago in the summer at the london zoo they had an exhibit where they had people in a cage next to an ape cage and they were wearing swimming costumes with fig leaves tied onto their swimming suits and they were having a lot of fun this was on youtube the last i looked um, they were having a lot of fun pretending like they were picking bugs out of the one guy's hair like apes do and they were laughing and a spokeswoman for the zoo said seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate well think about that you have thousands of parents and children walking by this exhibit they're laughing 
but the message they're supposed to get without thinking about it is humans are just another primate. Well, we keep primates in zoos all their lives. So is it okay to keep a human in a zoo cage? That actually happened. Oda Benga was a pygmy African from the Belgian Congo. His first wife and kids were brutally murdered by white thugs from the Belgian government. His second wife died of a snake bite. His tribe was captured by another African tribe and sold into slavery. Eventually, that tribe sold him to a white explorer who brought him to the United States, showed him off at the St. Louis World's Fair, and eventually sold him to the Bronx Zoo in New York City, where he was placed in the orangutan cage to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Black African pastors immediately protested. They eventually let him out during the day, but he had to sleep with the apes at night. Finally, after about three months, he was let out. He was taken into the care of some Christians. He moved to, uh, was taken to Virginia. He came to faith in Christ. He was working in a factory when it was all too much for him, and he committed suicide. But what's wrong with that if humans are just another primate? We're not just another primate. We're made in the image of God. And so if Adam is in our past, that means that we're unique, that God is the authority, that he makes the rules. But if an ape is in your ancestry, then it's the law of the jungle. And if you have a banana that I want and I'm stronger than you, I can take your banana. If you have a woman I want and I'm stronger than you, I can take your woman. If you have a company that I want and I'm stronger than you, I can cheat, lie, whatever. It's the survival of the fittest. If, if we're just animals, what's the difference? Well, we're not just animals. Well, the American atheists also know this matters. In a Christmas post on their website a few years ago, they said this. No Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. It also means that the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It is completely unreliable because it all begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fall of man means no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. And if evolution is true, that's perfectly logical thinking. You see, <clears throat> the Bible presents to us an account of Adam and Eve, and there's some miraculous things going on. The way they both came into existence, the fact that they talked to a talking snake, at least uh, Eve did. But then we come to the New Testament, and there's some miraculous things going on. Jesus is born of a virgin, and uh, he rises from the dead. If we don't believe what the Bible says about Adam, because the scientific majority says that's myth mythology, then to be consistent, we'll have to reject the virgin birth and the resurrection. Why? Because the same scientific majority that says that Adam was a myth also say virgins don't have babies and dead men don't rise from the dead. That's science. We can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible we're going to believe. It's all history. And Jesus died for a real historical problem. Well, Bernard Wood is another famous American anthropologist and an evolutionist. He said this a few years ago. 
There's a popular image of human evolution that you'll find all over the place. <clears throat> on the left of the picture, there's an ape. On the right, a man. Between the two is a succession of figures that become ever more like humans. Our progress from ape to human looks so smooth, so tidy. It's such a beguiling image that even the experts are loath to let it go. Why won't they let it go? Because that picture is very effective in brainwashing people. But, this evolutionist says, it is an illusion. That, folks, is an illusion. It's worse than an illusion. It's a deception because it leads people to think that they're just an animal descended from some other animal in a cosmos that is a grand accident. It leads people to think that there is no life after death, that there is no God to whom they are morally accountable, that there's no judgment day, that there is no heaven and hell. It's all a deception. You know, Paul was talking to the, to the intellectual giants of his day in Athens, and uh, he noted that they were idolaters. They had uh, statues to Zeus and Hermes and Diana, and they had a statue to the unknown God, and he preached to them, and he said, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so, the gospel is rooted in the foundational truths of Genesis, we mess with Genesis and we start to mythologize it, we start to symbolize it, and we're destroying the foundation of the gospel. And again, I would just say, maybe you've been in church all your life, but if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so because judgment day is coming. In my personal opinion, the way thing the world, the world is going Jesus is coming pretty soon. And when he comes, it'll be too late. We have to repent and believe in this, in this time. Today is the day of salvation. Well, our Answers book, Volume 1, has a chapter on racism. Chapter, uh, volume 2 has a chapter on ape men. The same is true of the Answers DVDs. Uh, it's important to reach the kids at a young age helping them understand about the importance of Adam and that he is foundational to the gospel. This lecture is available if you want to watch it again or share it with somebody. And uh, the book that I edited and contributed to, 16 scholars uh, defending the literal truth of Adam biblically, theologically, historically, anatomically, paleontologically, genetically, uh, Morally, I mean, it's a full-blown defense of Adam because Adam is under attack today, not only by the secularists, but within evangelical scholarship. Evangelical, so-called. That word is almost becoming meaningless. And uh, Ken Ham has a great uh, lecture, One Blood, One Race, in his foundation series. He's also written a book with Dr. Charles Ware, um, One Race, One Blood, and a book for kids on that subject. And then we have a little booklet for your shirt pocket to share with people. If everybody in America understood what the Bible teaches about the origin of man and the origin of people groups, 
we wouldn't have a racism problem. We have it because people don't know or believe what God's Word says. And sadly, some of the people who have racist attitudes are professing Christians. It ought not to be. So, encourage you to make it, take advantage of the resources. And let me just add one other thing. On our website, if, you're, if you would like to deepen your understanding and have a little bit of a structured course, we have a number of courses on our website where you, it's self-study at your own pace uh, where you can uh, really learn apologetics, creation apologetics. So you can check that out. Well, thank you for your attention. I hope you have a, a restful night and I hope that you come back because tomorrow night I'm going to talk about where the millions of years idea came from historically and I'm going to I'm going to shock you. You're going to see some people that you highly respect and you're going to be surprised that they were compromised with millions of years. And it'll help you to understand why so much of the evangelical scholarly world is compromised. And that will then lead us into the second lecture where we'll talk about Noah's flood. We'll look at it biblically and then we'll look at it geologically and uh, dating methods. So I um, encourage you to come back and bring a friend. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people that took time out of their day to come and learn and listen. And uh, Lord, if there's anybody here who has not really done business with you and bowed the knee and confessed their sin and trusted in Christ, Lord, don't let them go to sleep tonight without taking care of that matter. And for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that you would deepen the convictions about the truth of your word, about the authority of your word. I pray especially for the young people, Lord, that you will help them as they're bombarded with so many false ideas from people that are very intelligent, very gifted, but who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and crafting very clever arguments that seem persuasive but are deceptions. So Lord, help these young people to dig in and, and be, be able to defend their faith. You pray for a good night's sleep. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.